Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Sydney Toll, and I'm a 22 here at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Professor Charles Whelan, a senior lecturer and policy fellow with the Rockefeller Center, whose novel, The Rationing, came out just months before the arrival of COVID-19. Professor Whelan, thank you for joining us today. Good to be with you. Yesterday, you gave a lecture entitled The Rationing, a novel about a pandemic during the time of a pandemic. I was hoping you could give a brief synopsis of your book to our listeners and explain why you pursued writing on this particular topic. Sure. This is a book about a pathogen that is not completely understood, that is wreaking havoc in the United States and potentially around the world. It takes place in the near future, so the late 2020s, I guess you could say. The difference between that and COVID-19, we can talk about many similarities, but the big difference is... The novel assumes that in that time frame, the late 20s, we have come up with a new antibiotic that also works against viruses called Dormagen that is effective against this new pathogen. But the conceit of the novel is that because of some corporate fraud and a warehouse fire, there is a temporary shortage of Dormagen. The tension and the plot revolve around the political machinations of what the United States should do in the face of this shortage of dormagen as the pathogen is spreading around the country and the world. So I was just wondering why the theme of a pandemic is particularly adept at addressing issues surrounding public policy, and if you considered framing the novel around a different issue. You make a really good point, which is I didn't actually set out to write a novel about a pandemic. I set out to write a public policy thriller, although, as I said in my talk last night, the publisher said never use that phrase again, because apparently most people think that's an oxymoron. I don't. I set out to write a book where the kernel of it, the heart of it, was this tension of difficult trade-offs. Every public policy decision we face involves some very hard decisions. If it didn't, then it wouldn't be a challenge. So as we face climate change. Why is it hard? Well, because if we're going to do what we have to do to reduce carbon emissions, it's going to take a toll on our economy. That's just the way it is. If there were a solution that made everybody happy, we would have fixed it 20 years ago. Obviously, in the current environment with COVID-19, the trade-off is keeping people safe means keeping them at home. And at the same time, that does grave economic damage to many of the people who are most vulnerable to the virus. So I, I wanted to do that, and I framed it in the novel around this shortage of dormigen. So assuming you don't have enough of it, who gets what you have? And I kind of built out from there, but that's the fundamental tension at the heart of the book. Speaking of that and the title of the book, The Rationing, um, do you think rationing is inevitable in crisis situations, or do you think there are precautions we could take to avoid having to ration? Like, we can't always be prepared in every aspect, but is there more that we could be doing? There's always more that we can be doing. I mean, the better prepared you are, the less disastrous some unforeseen circumstance is going to be. But let me just say that when you're preparing during good weather, everybody tells you you're a fool for stockpiling umbrellas. So it's never going to be politically popular, for example, to be telling the banks that they ought to be holding more capital when the markets are booming, the economy is strong, but when there's an economic downturn, those banks are going to be much healthier for holding that capital. So yes, you can always minimize 
the trade-offs and the rationing by planning during the good times, but planning during the good times often makes you appear foolish or it feels excessively expensive or over-regulatory. So yes, better planning will help, but it's probably not going to solve the problem. You never quite know what the next crisis will be. I mean, who would have known five years ago that respirators would be the gating factor for how we deal with COVID-19. So I think it's inevitable, even in the face of good planning, that you're going to face circumstances where you don't have enough of what you need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, And you mentioned in your lecture yesterday that in the novel, they kind of wrestled with different ways to ration. You mentioned a lottery system, but there were several qualms with that, like with should prisoners also be involved in this system? Should the elderly? And so I was wondering if you think there is a right way to ration or if there is maybe the most optimal way to ration. I don't think there is a right way to ration. And I think that's what the principles in the book ultimately come to. So I didn't read that whole section last night, but it goes on fairly long. And they begin by saying, look, everybody should be eligible to get the drug. That makes sense. We don't have enough. Let's just give it out by lottery. And then someone raises the point, well, you know, what about people who are in prison, like they've violated some social contract. Don't they seem less worthy than people who aren't in prison? And they debate that for a while. And, you know, what about the really, you know, murderers, you know, they've actually killed somebody. And and so they temporarily decide, all right, well, maybe we won't give it to prisoners. And I'd add parenthetically that we're obviously having discussions around prisons and COVID-19 and releasing people and asking whether it's, it's moral to hold them in close quarters, even if they've committed crimes when it puts them at greater risk of disease. But anyway, in this hypothetical discussion in the novel, they then say, all right, well, what about ex-offenders? So, People have committed offenses, but now they're out of prison and they've done their time and they talk about that for a while. And then they say, all right, well, given that we only have enough, should we give it to college graduates? Because those are the people who are most valuable to rebuilding society. And somebody else points out, well, if we do that, it's going to disproportionately give the vaccine out to people who are white and privileged. So they talk about that. And again, in the case, in the face of COVID-19, we are seeing the virus disproportionately affecting people of color in part because of the jobs they do, but also because they're more likely to have comorbidities, other health issues that appear to compound the effect of the virus. So in the end, I'm not going to give away the book, they find that it's really hard to come up with even basic rules for deciding who deserves the vaccine more than others. Uh, And they're kind of back to where they started. Yeah. Thank you. Um, And you, you mentioned this idea of the termites in the basement. So these more long-term problems that the government tends to neglect in favor of short-term issues. And I was wondering, what do you think it would take for the government and for public policymakers to begin to address the termites in the basement? Like, we've witnessed huge natural disasters, and yet climate change remains on the back burner. So what do you think it would take for the government to start to address these issues? Just to put a finer point on the termites in the basement I described as these problems that are serious but long-term in nature, and therefore, by definition, they're not going to manifest themselves this afternoon. They're not going to feel appreciably worse than they were yesterday, and even though they are kind of slowly getting worse, a leaky roof would be the same as the termites in the basement, but what that means is that you can safely ignore them today. 
And oftentimes we become distracted by something that is maybe less urgent in the long run, but more immediate. So I compare it to the garage catching on fire. And so we're always kind of racing towards the short term urgent problem, even as the leak gets worse, the termites continue to multiply. And of course, as with a leaky roof or termites in the basement, at some point things just collapse cataclysmically. It's worth noting that the human mind is just not very adept at dealing with these long things because survival usually depends on dealing with immediate threats. So we're pretty good at pretending these problems don't exist. That is married to a political system that tends to reward short-term action and sometimes even punish long-term action because if you take action in the face of climate change, it might be expensive and affect businesses, but it's not obvious in the moment how you're making things better and if you're successful, people may never have known that there was a threat in the first place, right? You call the termite person, he comes, he kills the termites. You're like, wow, that was expensive. Why did we do that? Well, you, were, you never saw the counterfactual, which is the whole house collapsing. So there are a lot of reasons that termites in the basements kinds of problems are more difficult. You identify climate change, which I believe is a perfect example of this. It gets steadily worse, but is it worse today than yesterday? That's hard to prove. And of course, it leaves, there's enough uncertainty there that those who, for political reasons, want to pretend that it doesn't exist, have room to operate. In the same vein, I would say our growing debt, which has been exacerbated to a great degree by the response to COVID-19, is a problem. People are still buying government debt more than ever, but if that stops, then we'll have a debt crisis, pension crises, things around terrorism and loose nukes or dirty bombs where it's not a problem today, but if we don't work on it, then something like that might fall into the hands of a group with ill intentions. Uh, So I think it's really important that we pay attention to these, but it's our system and our human nature are just not well equipped for it. Yeah, thank you. Um, Something I found particularly interesting yesterday in your lecture was when you mentioned that by creating these antibiotics like Dormagen in your novel, you kind of phrase it as we are inventing our way out of problems. And so I was wondering if you think that we are doing ourselves a disservice by inventing our way out of our problems, and should we be doing more to understand pathogens rather than simply trying to eradicate them? I agree completely that we ought to be erring on the side of understanding. The book begins with kind of a disquisition on the challenge of antibiotic-resistant microbes. That is not the nature of COVID-19, but if you'd asked me five years ago, what's the next likely pandemic, I would have guessed that. And I mentioned in my talk that Gita Anand, who's a Dartmouth 89, is currently writing a book on tuberculosis that is resistant to antibiotics, which could be a very, very dangerous development. It's already spreading in India. We're seeing more of those cases in the United States. Before COVID-19 came along, I did a book festival in Vermont where I appeared jointly with a nonfiction writer who'd just done a book on superbugs, who had dealt with some of the most dangerous pathogens, very deadly, and resistant to most known antibiotics, and that was in New York City. So yes, I do think we have to understand the biology rather than just kind of blithely assuming that, well, we'll stay one half step ahead of the virus. Clearly, we're not a half step ahead of COVID-19. I will also make a plug for the liberal arts, 
which is technology alone is not going to save us. We have to be able to think big thoughts, including thoughts about potential rationing and fairness and income inequality and how we compensate uh, frontline workers. And all these issues are ones that require a complex understanding of everything from philosophy to history, and then, of course, biology and public policy. But we, re- we need complete thinkers to deal with these complicated problems. Technology alone is going to help, but it is not adequate to the task at hand. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Thank you. Um... And then another thing you mentioned that is similar between your novel and what's currently happening with the pandemic is the tendency for fake news to proliferate. Um, So I was wondering why you think it is that there is this tendency for fake news to come up during times of crisis. And if you think that this is ill-intentioned or if it's just human behavior to try to explain why these events are occurring. I think it's both. I think there is a human impulse in the face of uncertainty to try and ascribe causality before we actually know what's going on. And then in the face of that human impulse, I think you have bad actors who come along and will exploit it for all kinds of reasons, be it political, financial, what have you. We're seeing that. I mentioned in my talk yesterday that apparently there's some new documentary called Plandemic, which alleges that the the virus was deliberately introduced by some cadre of elites for whom this is some part of a master plan. I haven't seen the documentary. I don't plan to see it. But again, to your point, the parallel to the book is uncanny. In the book, there's a fake news person whose only motivation, by the way, is financial because he sells advertising. He has no dog in the fight whatsoever. He just gets up every morning and says, how can I get people to believe my stupid stories? He introduces a conspiracy whereby the virus has been deliberately introduced by a fringe terrorist group that is advocating for a breakaway Latino republic in the United States. A handful of southwestern states are going to break away and create their own Spanish-speaking country, which is complete nonsense, but it takes hold in the book because there are already some fissures around Latino identity. And it just he just exploits a small crack that's there and drives a cleavage into it to make it bigger. And then, of course, the story takes off. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned these ill-intentioned ill-intentioned actors. Um, And then in the lecture, you mentioned how um, in your novel, the Speaker of the House uses the pandemic to um, politically bludgeon the president. I was wondering if you see this happening with the current pandemic and what extent you think this will influence the upcoming presidential election. It's clearly playing out. You know, one thing that we sometimes forget is in the face of any American crisis, There's always an election looming at some point. The House elections are never more than two years away. A presidential election is never more than four years away. I actually find myself interested in a way I never had been before in how Roosevelt, for example, dealt with the Great Depression in World War II when he also had to run presidential campaigns. And how do you be a loyal opposition? So if you're a Republican candidate running against Roosevelt, how do you do that in a way that doesn't undermine the war effort? And obviously it didn't, as far as we know, because the United States rallied in the in the face of World War II and the like. In the current situation, obviously we have a presidential election in November of 2020. The pandemic has become a political hot potato. It, I think it's just unfortunate. 
that the way the pandemic manifests itself does have a red-blue divide. The places that are most densely populated tend to be blue for reasons we can talk about. There are major metro areas like New York, the big cities. They've been most hard hit by COVID-19. The places that are red, that are more rural, have been less hard hit. So you've already, they're just experiencing the disease differently. And therefore, it's understandable that they would have different responses to it. At the same time, those folks, and this is, I think is what's pernicious, those folks are often looking at different news sources, which I find very distressing. So they're the reality that's coming at them through the television or the radio is different, which is very divisive. So that plus the fact that obviously Joe Biden is running against Donald Trump and there's a natural impulse there to make the response to COVID-19 a campaign issue. I think all of these things together mean that a situation that ideally would bring us together to fight the virus is simultaneously further tearing us apart. And something I was hoping I was hoping you could elaborate more a little bit. Um, you talked yesterday in your lecture on these um, quote unquote faceless bureaucrats or people kind of doing work behind the scenes that we aren't paying enough attention to or respect to. So I was just hoping you could elaborate more on the role of these people and why do you think that they're not getting the attention they deserve? I think one of the sad ironies of the thousands and thousands of people who do these thankless jobs, and I'll talk in more detail about what they might be, is it's a good day if we have no idea who they are or what they do because they're doing it successfully. So we didn't think a whole lot about the screeners at the airports until September 11th, 2001, when somebody walked through one of those checkpoints with a box cutter. And at that point, history is different, and we paid a lot more attention to people who screen our luggage. The same, obviously, is true with people who plan for pandemics, the people who do basic research on viruses. Right now, I mentioned the idea of kind of loose nukes or dirty bombs. There are diplomats who aren't terribly well paid compared to people of similar talent who are on Wall Street or consulting firms who spend their days trying to make sure that a group like ISIS or Boko Haram don't get a, a weapon of mass destruction. And as I said at the outset, if they do a good job, that won't happen and we'll never read about it. Um, and so I think that we grossly underestimate how much service these people do to us because we never see the product of their good work. We don't know the counterfactual. Judd Gregg, who's a senator from New Hampshire, came to my class in the winter. He was very involved in the TARP bailout during the financial crisis of 2008. And he argued, and I believe, that TARP saved the global financial system. This was the kind of now labeled the bailout that Congress did to kind of rescue the financial sector. And Judd had a very powerful line. He said, look, Nobody believes, you know, we can say that we saved the financial system, but nobody believes it because they never saw the collapse. And I think that's something that characterizes all of these people doing really important work. The fact that we deride them, I think, is a really unfortunate point. And the fact that we kind of rail both parties, more Republicans at present, but the Democrats are often complicit, that we often rail against government and inefficiency and the like is really counterproductive to our long-term interests. Yeah, thank you. Um, 
And then just finally, um, a more on a more personal level, um, after publishing your first fiction novel, I was wondering which you prefer writing more, nonfiction or fiction? I like doing both. I think that they're complementary. I find that fiction writing, because it requires more description and more dialogue, makes me a better writer, which then helps my nonfiction writing. So the next book I have that's coming out is kind of a family memoir. It's about a trip that we took around the world as a family. So it's nonfiction, yet it requires a lot of the same tools as fiction, describing the places that we are, recreating the family dialogue and the like. So I think it, it goes back and forth. And I also find that as somebody who's done public policy for 30 years now, there's so much material there that I can then repurpose in fiction. And fiction is so liberating and that I can kind of write what I want. You know, in some ways, it's more liberating than writing an op-ed. I can write in the rationing about the danger of antibiotic-resistant microbes much more aggressively than I can in nonfiction. So I'm, I'm planning to continue doing both. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, thank you again to Professor Whelan. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you and getting to know more about your book. Um, and to our listeners, thank you all for tuning in. And until next time. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you will join us for our next episode. And if you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.